بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم والحمد لله رب العالمين والصلاة والسلام على نبينا محمد وعلى آله وأصحابه أجمعين السلام عليكم ورحمة الله وبركاته Welcome back to another episode of the Muslimi Experience where we get a chance to really deep dive into different Muslims' backgrounds, different scholars and, and activists and artists and so many different people from our community that have amazing stories. And today we're joined by a very special guest who has a background not only in Islamic sciences, but also in regular sciences as well, I guess you could say. Dr. Nazir Khan is joining us. Assalamu alaikum, Sheikh. Wa alaikum assalam wa rahmatullah buna. How's How it going? Doing? Good, good, alhamdulillah. Zakallah khair for joining us here today. Thanks um, for having me. I obviously know that you have multiple titles. You are a doctor. Right, and a real doctor, not like a historian doctor, or like a <laughs> not the one that you see in the memes. Or like, yeah. oh, but I can't save that person. Yeah. Not like a chiropractor, you know. <laughs> shots fired, I guess. People people talk bad about chiropractors all the time about their degrees, but you have a background in science, and you have a background in the Islamic sciences. Right. Um, let's talk a little bit about your formal education. Sure. You graduated from which university? So I did my undergrad and medical school at McMaster University, in Hamilton. And, yeah, in Hamilton. Uh, and then after that, I did uh, my residency in Winnipeg for five years in radiology. Mm-hmm. And then after that, I wanted to keep studying more. And I did a fellowship, a two-year fellowship in neuroradiology in Calgary. Wow. So Ontario, Manitoba, Alberta. And then I came back and took a position at uh, teaching as an assistant professor and working as a neuroradiologist in Hamilton at McMaster University. Allahu Akbar. Neuroradiologist. <laughs> I'm not going to use my bad joke. Don't worry. <laughs> I had a bad joke that I was going to throw out earlier because I was reading the term yes. and I thought it said something else. I okay. thought it said neuterologist. Oh, boy. Okay. So I thought mm. it was responsible for neuters, but I guess that's not. Thankfully not. No. Yeah, yeah. No. no, but neural, new, neurologist. Am I saying it correctly? No. Neurologist is different. Neurologist so. is the brain. Yeah. Well, neuro is the brain, but right. the neuroradiologist is the, is the medical doctor who uh, looks at images uh, scanned of a patient, right. uh, an MRI scan, CT scan, in order to diagnose what condition the patient has. And mm. once they have that diagnosis, that gives information to the neurologist or the neurosurgeon as to how to treat the patient, either medically or surgically. This feels like an episode of the Magic School Bus. I'm learning so much. It's yeah. basic <laughs> stuff for me, but I mean, With it's the basic frizz, stuff for no you. No way. <laughs> <laughs> so I mean, how did you get into this field? Was it something that you were always interested in as a kid? Yeah, so that's a good question. So um, throughout my, uh, I guess, later high school years and undergraduate years, I've always been fascinated by the brain and by neuroscience. And I think it goes back to the idea that, you know, like every other organ, we really understand its function, right? The mm. stomach digests food, right? The heart mm. beats, pumps blood. When it comes to the brain and the function being thoughts, that's a connection that is so mysterious to scientists, right? right? It's actually been called the hard problem of consciousness, that how can something as unconscious as a bunch of cells, a bunch of particles matter, create something as conscious and immaterial as the mind? Right. So the brain is fascinating. And um, that's what kind of led me to to want to study it and to understand it. Uh, and And that led me into the neurosciences, which eventually led me to using imaging technology to study the brain, right? Which has mm-hmm. led me into neuroradiology. But I, I would say it also actually furthered my interest in uh, theology and philosophy because from the Islamic standpoint, then we talk about the soul mm-hmm. and how the soul plays a role in our conscious experience, right? right? And so you have the body and you have the soul and how does that go together? And how does that fit in with the fact that we have the brain and the cerebral cortex and the different neurochemical stimuli taking place? So mm-hmm. all of that was kind of an interest that 
field, both my Islamic studies and my medical studies. Well, that's a really interesting point, actually. Like, what do the medical journals speak about in terms of, you know, consciousness and the soul and this idea of, you know, um, something inside of you that can be, you know, some people that are brain dead, quote unquote, they're alive, but their brains yeah. are not working. Like, how does that work in your field? Like, is there a mention of this idea of a soul? So, no. So that takes place in the philosophy journals, not the medical journals. Right. And, uh, you know, one of the things that's interesting in medicine is that neurology and psychiatry are two separate specialties. And you might think that's a little bit peculiar, right? Because mm -hmm. both of them are ultimately dealing with the brain, mm -hmm. uh, or so we think, right? But even in medicine, we often, when, when a patient comes in with uh, different symptoms, right, that seem psych psychiatric symptoms, one of the things we often say is rule out an organic cause. Mm. And that means rule out a, uh, a, a problem that is, that is something we can see taking place in their brain, right, mm -hmm. or in their body, right, Some, something wrong with their blood tests or with, you know, like a tumor in their brain or something like that. That's called an organic cause. Mm. And so it's interesting, well, you know, if you've ruled out an organic cause, then what's left, right? So there's almost an implicit understanding that the mind has a component that is inorganic, right? That is beyond the human physiology. Mm -hmm. And so I would say that that is something that, that shows that there is um, almost a, a medical acknowledgement of the fact that we have this conscious experience which transcends our physical matter. And, and from the theological perspective, we call that the soul. Mm. So this is very interesting. I want to talk. I want to touch back on this, but I think your experience as uh, a medical doctor and and obviously taking that love of Dawah and Islam and thinking and science, um, you are working with Yakin Yakin right. Institute. Yakin, as we know, is one of the largest you know research institutes for Islamic sciences. Um, as your role as president, what has been your focus? What what uh, you know particular papers or, or topics do you normally write about and focus on? Yeah, so alhamdulillah, I've been with Yaqeen Institute since the start in uh, in 2016. And Yaqeen Institute, uh, you know, deals with addressing some of the contemporary questions that people have using the resources from Islamic scholarship, mm -hmm. right? Uh, so we deal with dismantling people's doubts, nurturing conviction, inspiring contribution, allowing people to understand what their faith really teaches and to be, uh, to use that to be inspired to be productive, you know, contributing members of of society and, 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 you know, focus on building something. And so from the perspective of, of research, I've actually been involved in, in research in, in, in a quite a few different areas. Some of the topics are uh, theological, right? Like, uh, how do we know God exists, for example? It's mm. a big question. We live in an age of atheism, right? Uh, some of the topics are related to uh, religion versus science. Um, and all of these are topics that kind of relate to my shared interest of being both in religious studies and in, in the natural sciences. Uh, and then on the Yaqeen Canada side, as the president of Yaqeen Canada, we're involved in grassroots work, working with different masajid, working with different Islamic organizations to ensure that the Yaqeen resources are actually benefiting the end user, as we mm -hmm. say, right? The av average Muslim is actually being able to benefit from this, or, or even the average non-Muslim. Some of our works are taught in uh, university courses, introductory courses on Islam or, or or world religions or whatever, people are able to use the Yaqeen resources to eliminate misconceptions people have about Islam. Mm. Can you share with us some of the, you know, the inner workings of a research institute? A lot of people don't really understand what that means, right? Like, yeah. what, what does that entail? Are you guys 
publishing papers together? Are you calling out to other, you know, scientists and people in the academic field right. to request papers? Like, what does a research institute actually do? So I think one of the things that's really interesting about Yaqeen and that's very unique on, you know, in the research world and even in the da'wah scene is that Yaqeen is an institute that brings together people who are traditionally trained Muslim scholars, so people who have studied and graduated from Al-Azhar University in Egypt or Medina University in, in Saudi alongside people with uh, you know, uh, academic uh, background in, uh, in the West, who have studied Islamic studies in the West, uh, alongside people who have an academic background in other fields, whether it's psychology, political sciences, uh, you know, the natural sciences, people of all these different backgrounds. And when we do research on a particular topic, we are looking at that question from all of these different lenses. And we are, you know, informing our answer through these, these different uh, approaches so that we provide people with the best answer. So it's, it's an answer that takes into account mental health, for example. Mm -hmm. It's an answer that takes into account Islamic theology and Islamic jurisprudence. It's an answer that takes into account, you know, changes in human culture and in the society that we're living in. Uh, so all of that is kind of coming together. And that's one of the interesting things that takes place behind the scenes in Yaqeen. What are some of the most recent trends you guys have been seeing? I mean, in terms of the way in which <clears throat> particularly young Muslims are understanding Islam or, um, you know, I, 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 you have a long background yourself in, in Islamic sciences and we'll right. go through some of your, your background. But what have you been seeing as of recent in certain, certain trends or certain problems maybe that you guys are noticing in terms of people's understanding? Yeah. So uh, I think one thing that we're, we're definitely seeing with the age of the Internet, the rise of social media, is that um, people have self-secularized. What, what do I mean by that? People have taken the Islam as just an identity and removed from it any of its moral content, any of its beliefs. So what does it mean to be a Muslim, right? Uh, for, for a lot of the younger generation now, being Muslim is just your cultural identity, right? Mm -hmm. You eat samosas and biryani. Mm -hmm. You go to the mosque, right? Mm -hmm. you, go, you, you, you go to iftar parties. It's Ramadan. But, Eid. Ramadan, yeah, Eid celebrations, that, mm -hmm. that's it. But when it comes to how you decide what is right and what is wrong, people are taking their moral decisions from the dominant ideologies of society, which is secularism, liberalism, humanism. And so you have people who are saying, well, you know, I believe this or I don't believe that. And they're talking about their beliefs. And it's none of it is coming from their Islamic teachings. Right. They it's almost like they're ignorant of what Islam actually says about that. Mm -hmm. Instead, they're taking it uh, from identity politics or postmodernism or all these other uh, ideologies. Mm. You know, it's really interesting you bring that up, Sheikh. I have a major issue with Hollywood. I okay. think one of the most recent agendas that I've seen is this push to get Muslims on screen. Right. right? They want to fill their diversity quotas. You have the random hijabi in the background of a right. shot or something. And I feel like there's a big push to represent Muslims, but they are very hesitant to represent Islam correctly. Right, right. Because right. I think there's a huge difference, right? Muslims yeah. are the people that make mistakes, they're flawed or whatever, right. but Islam is something that... I still feel the dominant culture is not willing to fairly accurately represent. Do you oh, find yeah. that to be the case? Absolutely, yeah. So we see this everywhere, right? You go to Shoppers Drug Mart, you see a big mm -hmm. poster of a hijabi. You go anywhere you go, well, right? Sister selling Tim Hortons. I oh, yes. see that ad. <laughs> right? Yeah. Any ad, you, because they want Muslim quote-unquote representation, because that's what postmodernism is about, right? It's just making minorities visible. 
But when it comes to actually representing the values of Islam, mm. representing the beliefs of Islam, people don't want to do that, right? right? Because that conflicts with the dominant uh, ideology in, in society. And so the, the idea that you know Muslim beliefs that um, it is unethical to worship other than God, right? Mm. Or that you know Islam is, is, is the true way of life. Like these are fundamental beliefs and values of a Muslim. Mm -hmm. uh, but you're seeing those kind of being diminished because of uh, that, that dominant ideology. Mm. Well, I'll give you one example that I've seen uh, recently. And we, we can talk about it if you'd right. like. But, you know, there's this Marvel's TV show, Ms. Right. Marvel. Yeah. Okay. Features a young Muslim character. Yeah. I, um, I did a big tangent about this online at one point. Like when, when the series first came out, I right. could see very clearly after episode one where the series was going. Right. I felt like, you know, they were going to take some weird kind of... I, I knew Jin were involved somehow. Right. Okay? Did you actually see the series? I did, yeah. Yeah, and I think actually we talked about it initially when it first came out, the yeah. series. Yeah. Um, what were your thoughts around the series? Yeah, so I mean, uh, with all of these things, it's, it's like a double-edged sword. On the one hand, you know, Muslims are very excited to have a representation of themselves where they're not like the terrorists in, mm. the, in the TV show because that's what Hollywood has been doing for towards Muslims for... Decades, right? Muslims have been consistently represented as villains in, in, in television shows. So on the one hand, it seems nice to have a, a, a portrayal of Islam and Muslims that is humanizing, right? right? And that's certainly a, a good thing. But on the other hand, you know, there is also a push to make, um, to erase the moral content of Islam, right? Mm -hmm. To erase the belief system of Islam. So now, what are your beliefs as a Muslim? You believe Allah created the, the, the universe, created you with a purpose in your life, and you believe that there, there's angels, you believe in divine decree, you have all these beliefs. But now all of a sudden, if you're in the Miss Marvel universe, the Muslim exists in a universe that has um, Thor, that has the Norse gods, right? That yeah. has Thanos, right? Yeah. That has... Um, the Wakanda afterlife. The Wakanda, the, yeah, that has, so the, the, those are all things that are true in that universe as well. So now, you know, it used to be, the people used to understand that if you believe in one truth, anything that contradicts that truth is, is falsehood, right? Mm -hmm. Truth and falsehood don't mix. Mm -hmm. But what, we, what we're seeing now with postmodernism is you have your truth, I have mm -hmm. my truth, and all these truths are simultaneously existing. So you have, you have Thor entering an arena where all the gods are sitting there. Right. And so that's that's the idea where Muslims are kind of being told, like, yeah, come bring your God, bring your this. And there is no difference between you having your beliefs as a Muslim versus somebody being a fan of Star Wars. It's almost like your beliefs, you as a as a worshiper and adherent to faith are kind of like the same thing as a fan. Right. Mm -hmm. Oh, you know, this guy likes Lord of the Rings. This guy likes Star Wars. You you like believing in Allah and the, and the Prophet Muhammad. It's like mm. there's nothing about that that is describing the ultimate truths of reality. It's just something you like to do, right? Mm. And so it's like we embrace all of these different ideas, but in a way, truth has kind of the truth value of it has kind of been dismissed. And that goes back to a deeper point, which is that the West in the past 10 years is seeing a big shift. And it's a shift going from liberalism to postmodernism. So in liberalism, the idea was there is an ultimate truth and the human mind can re reach that truth mm. without needing religion, right? And so then you used to actually have debates between atheists and theists, right? The theists would say God exists. That's the truth. The atheists would say God does not exist. Th mm. That's the truth, right? And that was under the assumption that there is an ultimate truth. 
Now, what happens when society switches to a way of thinking where there is no ultimate truth, right? It's all relative, right? This is postmodernism, right? You have your truth, I have my truth. So now it doesn't make sense for the theists and atheists to debate anymore. Mm. So instead, people you have people not identifying as atheists anymore, but instead what we find is this attitude called misotheism. Mm. Have you come across this term before? I have, actually. Funny enough, I had a character in my latest film, Purple Don't Cry. Shout out Purple Don't Cry. Go check in the theaters right now. Uh, I have to do that plug. Yeah, okay. Um, and we talked about this, actually, myself and the director, Mahmoud Hassan, right. about this character who has this anger towards God, right. this anger towards Allah, but yes. I'm sure you can expand on that, inshallah. Yeah, so that's what misotheism is, right? It's it's uh, hatred towards God. So it's like, you know, it, some people say, well, it's uh, there, there was one person, uh, Steven Weinberg, a Nobel Prize physicist, who said something along the lines that, you know, to me, it, it doesn't matter of whether God actually exists or not. It's, it's not that I don't believe he exists or I don't believe there's enough evidence that he exists. Uh, I just don't like who he is. Like, who oh, is who is he to tell me to worship him, or something along those lines, right? And other people have expressed similar ideas, and you see it in the culture, right? In the in popular media and po- uh, movies and television shows, there's this idea of you know blaming God, right? Mm. Or um, you know uh, the the Marvel villain in in Thor, uh, uh, in the latest Thor, when he 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 witnesses his God and realizes his. His, the God that he was worshiping is just a jerk and doesn't care about him, mm. that sets him on this course to become a villain and mm. become a gore the God killer, right? And yeah. this kind of I- ideas that are being now mass popularized. So when I tell people, it's like when you are watching movies and television shows, there is an aqidah, a belief system that is embedded in those movies oh. and television shows. And just like we study, you know, mutun or texts, classical manuals of Islamic theology, when you consume a movie or a television show, you are consuming the mutun, the manuals mm. of this theology, the theology of misotheism or the theology of atheism. And these are ideas that uh, are absolutely corrosive to, to faith because it's just about getting people to um, sanctify themselves, glorify themselves, so engage in self-worship, you know, embrace your, your own truth. You do you, right? Just be yourself, no judgment. And blame God and say that, you know, all the problems are because of God. Whether he exists or doesn't exist, blame him and and and, and have mm-hmm. this kind of animosity towards religion or, or whatever. Well, how do we embrace, you know, we're living in a multicultural society, right? Multi-faith society I yeah. mean, in Canada, North America, UK, right. Europe, where we are, you know, embedded in a culture where we are taught to celebrate all these different faiths and cultures right. and ethnic groups. So how do we as Muslims still proclaim truth yes. and tell people, hey, this is the truth without necessarily, you know, burning those bridges or making people feel, I don't know, for lack of a better term, insulted, right? Yeah, so that's a great question. And people think that these two things contradict, right? That you have to somehow temper your own beliefs in order to uh, accommodate others. And and actually, no, like you can be fully convinced of, of the truth of your beliefs and also be the most compassionate, polite, kind, courteous person that, you know, your neighbors or co-workers ever met. And I believe that's what Islam calls upon us to do, is to be uh, ambassadors through our moral character. Uh, and the reason why that happens is because uh, it's embedded within the Islamic uh, belief, sy- belief system, right? Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, uh, right? Like, had your Lord willed, He would have made people all one uh, community, right. one religious community. 
right? And, but they will not cease to differ, right? They will will not cease to have different viewpoints. So um, this, uh, you know, the, the Quran tells the Prophet Muhammad Sallallahu how to call to other people. Uh, it tells him, فَبِمَا رَحْمَةٍ مِّنَ اللَّهِ لِنْتَ لَهُمْ Like it is mercy from your Lord that you were lenient with them. Mm-hmm. And had you been hard-hearted or strict with them, they would have ran from uh, away from you. Mm-hmm. So that kind of harshness that people associate with religious fundamentalism, right? Like, you know, I'm going to paradise, you're going to hell. Like we don't have that in Islam and we shouldn't have that in Islam because, uh, you know, in Islam, we a believer does never declares heaven or hell for for any person because we don't know who is who is going we know that a person who follows the path of uh, of islam this is the, the way of allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and this is the path to jannah but i can't say that i am going to jannah right, right? i can't say that this person is not going to uh, uh, to jannah because that aspect is how god will judge each person according to their limitations according to their abilities according to their circumstances right mm-hmm. so that's something that muslim scholars have mentioned like uh, sheikh Hassan ibn taymiyyah he mentions one of the famous islamic theologians he says that no person can assign heaven or hell to any other individual mm-hmm. and that humility allows us to build a, a framework in which we engage with all people with you know the best conduct right um and the other example that i give people is that you know Somebody could be, let's, let's say you have two individuals, take religion out of the p- picture, for example, two individuals who differ on a question of ethics, right? One person uh, believes that eating meat is unethical. They're an ethical vegan. Mm-hmm. And let's say their family member or neighbor is uh, somebody who loves a good barbecue, right? Mm-hmm. These t- people have different ethical views. The vegan believes that the other person is doing something unethical. But it doesn't prevent them from working together, meeting together, dealing with them in in, in uh, appropriate manner. Mm-hmm. And in the same way, that's that's the viewpoint of of Muslims: is that yes, we believe Islam is the truth, right? And we uh, whatever contradicts truth is logically false. Mm-hmm. But that doesn't prevent us from dealing with other people uh, with the 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 best manner, right? Mm-hmm. The, in the Quran, Allah Subhanahu wa Taala also mentions in Surah Al-Mumtahina. Uh, the 60th chapter in the Quran, that uh, those who are not fighting you or driving you out of your homes, right? Speaking in the context of uh, the Muslims face a lot of persecution in the time of the Prophet Muhammad yes. Those who are not engaged in that, you know, they're not fighting you, they're not uh, persecuting you. Uh, God does not prevent you from dealing with them with bir and rahma, right? Mm. Bir is 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 uh, the highest level of virtue, the highest level of respect and and good conduct and. In fact, we're commanded to have bitter towards our parents, parents right? Well, yes, and uh, uh, to have bitter towards them and to have justice towards them, those people who are peaceful with us, right? Mm. And so that's the code of conduct. People who are peaceful from whatever background they're from have justice and, and righteous conduct with them. And this is the example of the Prophet as well. Yes. I mean, if you study his life and you study the way he interacted with the people of Medina or right. you know, all the different tribes that he interacted with, I think a lot of that history gets lost right. when you know Islamophobes start attacking Islam. They start attacking the character of the Prophet Sallallahu but they don't yeah. realize like he came from a multi-faith culture and society where people had these varying beliefs and views, and he was still able to try and bring them together and and try and find ways of dealing with them in admirable ways. 
I mean, do you think that's something that people kind of brush under the rug? Yeah, and I, I think this is one of the challenges we have in the internet age is that people, there's so many uh, allegations that are always being circulated against the Prophet that people don't have time to actually read the biography of Prophet Muhammad وسلم, from beginning to end and see that when you actually look at his life, you see that these are um, uh, these allegations are all completely unfounded, right? The entire life of the Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, in a nutshell, is showing his his mercy and compassion towards people of, uh, of, uh, of uh, all around him, right? Uh, he forgave so many of his enemies, so many of his enemies, right? He was persecuted for uh, with his followers for 13 years in Mecca. They were driven out of their homes, and finally, when they came back in the conquest of Mecca, when Muslims, uh, you know, had increased in numbers, 10,000 Muslims, they come back and they're standing in front of the 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 Quraysh, and the Quraysh, you know, the Prophet says, "What do you think I'm going to do with you?" Mm. And uh, the Quraysh kind of plead, like, "Oh, you're a son of a noble person. Like, please mm. be kind to us," even though they. They tortured him and his followers, killed his right? Family and Ki his killed, uh, and killed so many uh, yeah. uh, believers, and the Prophet Muhammad peace be upon him says, "Go, for verily you are forgiven." Right. So it's moments of that, like massive moments of forgiveness, that you see in the character of the Prophet Muhammad peace be upon him. Right. You have incidents where somebody stands over him with a sword and 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 says, "You know, uh, who's going to save you from me?" Al-Ghawrath uh, was his name and the Prophet just says Allah right the guy starts shaking and he's surprised at this you know the confidence with which the Prophet says this he drops his sword and the Prophet picks it up and says now who will save you from me the person had nothing to say the Prophet forgave him and that person later became Muslim right so the Prophet said I've not been sent to uh, to curse uh, I've been sent as a, a, a prophet of mercy, a prophet of compassion. Um, and that's that's what we as Muslims believe. Mm. So when you study the life of the Prophet, uh, Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, in all of its details, all of these incidents that people try to draw out and turn into allegations, they're properly contextualized. And you see that his entire life is a life of mercy and compassion to, to all of humanity. Mm. And that's actually one of the first hadith. When people study hadith, one of the, the, the first hadith that is transmitted uh, is a hadith that says, those who show mercy and compassion to others, God shows mercy and compassion to them, mm. right? Show mercy and compassion to those on this earth. And it doesn't say only to Muslims. It says, show mm. mercy and compassion to those on this earth. The one who is above the heavens will have mercy on Allah you, Akbar. right? Uh, in another narration, uh, the Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, said, uh, Donate in charity to people of all religions. Mm. Right? And so this concept is something that is deeply ingrained in our Islamic tradition. Not to just, you know, in, uh, restrict our good behavior to people who share the same religion as us, mm -hmm. but actually to be ambassadors for humanity. You know, showing good conduct towards not just all human beings, but all of creation. We have a duty towards animals towards the environment that's that's what islam wants from us which is ironic because you find a lot of uh muslim duat right. okay i use this word lightly right. loosely, speakers yeah yeah speakers you yeah. know um they sometimes take this very aggressive approach uh -huh. you will find a lot of times you know these debates online and people yeah. in parks and they're shouting and there's yeah. a, sh a yelling match and this is supposed to be a way of transmitting the message of islam when reality right. is the prophet's character was very different right, right in approach um, can you talk a little bit about that approach to da'wah 
Yeah. That that like, you know, because I think a lot of times there is this frustration with science and with liberalism. And so people try and create these platforms and avenues where they can dissect these ideas, but they do it sometimes in ways that are a little bit disrespectful. Right. Very aggressive. Yeah. So this is a big uh, topic and big issue. And, you know, somebody goes online and, uh, you know, they're trying to learn about Islam and they see all these people like screaming and shouting and not just attacking their opponent who may be uh, non-Muslim, but even attacking other Muslims, mm. right? And you wonder, like, how, what is the average person going to take away from all this, right? This person slandering this person, this person slandering this person. Like, the whole online da'wah scene is a mess, right? It's actually a, a complete mess. And everyone's just doing it to increase their views, mm. get more followers, mm -hmm. make their own platform bigger. And so, in in the Quran, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, in Surah Fusilat, uh, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, who is better in speech than one who calls to Allah? They're not calling to their platform. Hey, mm. don't forget to like and subscribe. <laughs> like and subscribe. <laughs> <laughs> they're, they're not that. Their point of their call, their right. sincerity is they're calling to Allah, right? And uh, Imam al-Shafari said, if this knowledge could be spread and nothing of it was attributed to me, I'd be so happy with it, right? Oh, you know, that would be the greatest thing. It's not about building my own platform or building my own ego or doing things for um, for clout, right? Mm. It's calling to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and doing, acting righteously, mm. right? That righteous conduct goes hand in hand with being a caller to, to Islam. Sometimes you see the worst conduct, the worst manners uh, uh, exemplified by people online. Uh, the way in which they, they, uh, they slander, the way in which they use foul speech, the way in which they behave like to be, uh, you know, to be frank, like fools, right? Mm -hmm. Online. Um, and, uh, you know, that, that's all something that goes against the very ethics of da'wah. So, um, you know, in the, when we see this, this situation unfolding online and we look at the prophetic example and, you know, the Islamic teachings, we see they're totally different, mm -hmm. right? And um, there's, one, there's one article that I read that I thought was very interesting that asked about, you know, it's because it's not just happening in the Muslim sp space, right? Mm. This is also happening in general. People are talking about how Twitter and, uh, you know, YouTube comments and all these places are becoming so toxic. Yeah. Why are they becoming so toxic? One of the uh, interesting articles was an article talking about why the past 10 years of, uh, of history in America have been uniquely stupid. <laughs> and uh, the article linked it with um, <clears throat> the invention of the like button and the share button on social wow. media. So when people started to use these these uh, um, you know buttons on social media, it created a dynamic where your content will be shared more depending on how much outrage it triggers, mm. depending on how controversial it is. And so it's no longer about, oh, hey, let me provide a really academic and good summary of this Islamic topic. It's like, oh, did you know that Sheikh so-and-so is a deviant, right? Oh and then all of a sudden... You know, that's it. They they get a lot of followers. That's what that's what sells, right? Mm -hmm. So that's not da'wah. There's nothing da'wah about saying so and so sheikh is a deviant, yeah. right? But that's that's the nature of the online da'wah scene now. It's all about character assassination and this kind of stuff. And so it's it's built into social media. Social media is engineered to create an environment where the most toxic content is what flourishes. Mm -hmm. Oh, there's a lot of people who've gotten very big brands and names out of that. Yeah. A lot of people that, you know, like you said, there are people who I feel personally are not motivated by necessarily, you know, a positive 
Right. It's not coming from a positive place. They, right. like you said, they want to build their own fan base. They want yeah. to build their own followers. But there is sometimes you'll hear, you know, some some truth that comes from them. Obviously, we're right. not going to negate all the good that they do, yeah. right? And a lot of times there is this particular focus on science and dismantling science and dismantling this kind of new age movement of science. You actually come from a science background. You're a scientist. Right. Um, what do you think about some of those major issues that they are you know, using to kind of critique science and the new age movement? Okay, so let me take a step back and say, when it comes to this topic of religion and science, I find that a lot of the popular discourse is misguided for few reasons. One is where people are coming from. Some people are making big pronouncements about the relationship between science and religion, and they have no background in the sciences. They have no academic degree in the sciences. And on the other hand, some people are, um, you know, uh, in, in the sciences and they're making pronouncements about religion. And their only familiarity with religion is just that they grew up in a Muslim culture or whatever, mm-hmm. right? They actually have no ijazat, right? No uh, licenses in uh, traditional Islamic studies or no formal uh, degrees in, 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 in Islamic studies. So for myself, as somebody who is doing my doctorate in Islamic theology, somebody who is a medical doctor, somebody who is ha- has one foot in both worlds, when I look at what's happening right now, um, I'm reminded of a statement of actually a famous Muslim scholar, Imam Ibn al-Qayyim. Mm. He said that uh, he complained about other Muslim scholars who in their rush to defend uh, Islam against some of the discoveries being made or some of the dis- discussions that are happening in, at that time it wasn't science, it was called natural philosophy. Mm-hmm. Uh, what they do is they reject everything in natural philosophy, the good along with the bad. And he says, woe to them if, if they hadn't done this, they wouldn't have given the enemies of Islam an excuse to attack uh, Muslims and Muslim scholars and say, oh, look at these people. They're so irrational. They're just mm. rejecting everything. So that's what I find right now is that you have one movement that uh, has a very limited understanding of Islamic theology and they're just basically saying, oh, well, Islam can agree with anything that comes out of science, right? Mm-hmm. In, in other words, Islam really do- has nothing to contribute to the discussion. And another group that has a very limited understanding of the sciences, and they're just, just saying, oh, this is uh, made up, this is uh, this thing from science doesn't make any sense. In other words, all of science is just a conspiracy and it's optional whether you believe in it or not. Even things that are you know, well-confirmed empirical facts, like uh, the fact that the earth is round, right? Mm. It, well, it's optional, why do we put scientists on a pedestal or whatever? So the problem with these movements is that they haven't understood one basic principle, is that from an Islamic perspective, the bifurcation, the separation between science and religion doesn't exist. Mm. What, do, what do I mean by that? When you look at how the Quran uses the word ayah, sign, or ayat, signs of God, sometimes in the Quran, the word ayat is used to refer to verses of the Quran. We call these ayat al-Qur'aniyah, the mm-hmm. signs of Allah in scripture. And sometimes the word ayat is used to refer to the signs of Allah in nature. So you have ayat al-kawniya, the natural signs. Mm. And you have ayat al-Qur'aniya, the scriptural signs of God. So both disciplines, whether you are studying medicine, whether you're studying the workings of the brain or, or the human body or astronomy, or whether you're studying Qur'an and hadith or, or fiqh, Islamic jurisprudence, you are studying signs of God, signs oh. of the Creator, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So from an Islamic perspective, both of these are religious disciplines, they're both, you know, religious knowledge. Mm-hmm. And secondly, 
They're also both scientific disciplines because even when you're studying religion, you're studying it using an empirical method, a scientific method, which is we look at what's the evidence, mm -hmm. right? We look at when, it, when somebody says, well, this is halal or this is haram, right? What's the evidence? What's the dalil, right? And we take an evidence-based approach to, uh, to Islamic uh, theology, to Islamic uh, uh, law as well. And so it's interesting for me. I come from McMaster University, which is the university that is famous for founding evidence-based medicine. Wow. So, you know, that's something that is, is, you know, McMaster is very proud of. And, and that's something that is revolutionized medical research and whatever. And from an Islamic studies approach, I find that Islamic studies gives us an evidence-based belief system, evidence-based morality. Mm. It's telling us that if you're going to say something is morally right or morally wrong, what is your evidence for that? Right? It's not subjective feelings. It has to be rooted in you know, the divine revelation. Mm. And that divine revelation constitutes your evidence. Right? Mm. It has to be rooted in the human fitra, right? the natural uh, instinct of, of the human being to recognize certain things as morally upright and certain things as, as corrupt. So there are, uh, and th those are obviously augmented by research and, and use, use of human reason, but that's how, you know, having that evidence-based approach is actually something that is uh, from within the Islamic tradition. So one of the topics that, you know, we talked about a little bit, but is this big dilemma, right? Is this contradiction between Islam and science? Mm -hmm. Can Islam and science coexist? Um, there's obviously a long history of Muslims with the sciences. Right. But can you talk to that just initial question? Can Islam and science coexist? All right. So let me start with the fact that not only can they co coexist, but when you truly understand the philosophy of science and how science works, at a deeper level, science needs God. What do I mean by that? Well, when you study science, what are we doing in science, right? We, we are uh, trying to understand natural phenomena, right? We are using different methods, empirical methods, to try to understand the world around us. And that is based on certain fundamental assumptions. One of those assumptions is that the universe itself is intelligible, that we can actually understand and decode and decipher the you know, basic workings of the world around us. That's an assumption that we have no empirical evidence for, but it is, it is an assumption that is necessary in order for science to work. Mm. Another fundamental, I wouldn't say even assumption, but value under which science operates is the idea that the universe is ordered according to uh, natural laws. And the terminology, the laws of nature, actually comes from a theistic worldview. It comes from the fact that you know, people who use that terminology, that there are laws of nature, they believed in God, and they believed that God had set certain laws in place. And that's why when we repeat the same experiment, we get the same result. Mm -hmm. we're, we're not expecting the universe to change. The laws of physics don't change. There are immutable, unchanging laws of nature. And those laws have been set by God. So one astrophysicist, actually, a non-Muslim astrophysicist, his name's Paul Davies, he wrote an article in the New York Times back in 2006 where he, he titled it, Taking Science on Faith. Mm. And people were upset by that because at that time the New Atheist Movement was big and they said, um, you know, how, how dare you say we're taking science on faith? And he's like, look, as a scientist, I'm being honest, that science operates based on these worldviews, based on these fundamental values that actually come from a religious worldview. And without that, 
you can't even do science. Science wouldn't begin to uh, w- wouldn't exist to begin with. Mm. So all of these fundamental concepts, the idea that uh, you, know, you know that there are fundamental laws of nature that we can understand the world, uh, the idea that there is a true answer and a false answer, right? All of these things come from the human fitra and the human na- nature that God has endowed us with, and they come from a theistic worldview. So that's the first part of, of the, the question. Now, the other thing that you had mentioned is uh, about the history of Islamic yes. science, right? So this is really interesting because there's a big difference, you know, between what happened in Europe versus what happened in the Muslim world. Mm. So many times when people present this conflict of religion versus science, they have in mind the history of Christianity, right? And they're projecting that experience with Christianity onto Islam and science and assuming that there must be a similar relationship. So uh, you have a history where there was a tension between what scientists were talking about and what the church was saying, right? So you have examples like Galileo, everyone mentions, right? Mm -hmm. There are examples of persecution of scientists at the hand of religious institutions. From the Islamic perspective, that is totally different. You know, and this is something that uh, I've written about with the Aqidi Institute is that we don't have examples of scientists being persecuted by uh, the, uh, any Islamic uh, government or religious institution because of claims that they were making about discoveries of the natural world. Mm. That was something that didn't take place in, in Islam. And in fact, what the, the best historical research shows is that the Islamic worldview inspired uh, these this this generation of amazing scientific discoveries about astronomy, right? When you look up at the night st- uh, at the night sky, you look at the Big Dipper. Mm. Look at the names of the stars in the Big Dipper, right? Mm. They they have Arabic names. Look at so many stars in the sky; they have Arabic names. Why is that? Why were Muslim uh, scientists at the forefront? They had this worldview that taught them that there are signs of God in nature all around them. And uh, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says in the Quran, وَبِنَّجِمِهُمْ يَهْتَدُونَ Right? Mm. They use the, the stars to guide their path traveling. Right? So Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala refers to the stars, refers to the natural signs around us as, as signs of God. And this is something that motivated uh, the natural sciences. And there were also principles of theology that allowed people to understand uh, nature as well. Understanding, for example, uh, how... Uh, the creation is is, is uh, comes about that uh, everything is ordered by God, right? Mm-hmm. Um, that that uh, that God has uh, f- his divine decree, his qadr has properly proportioned everything in existence. Mm-hmm. These were concepts that uh, influenced and motivated the way that in which Muslim thinkers started to examine the natural world. So we have examples of many scholars who were not only scientists but also uh, Muslim scholars as well. So one thing that's interesting for me as a medical doctor, you know, when we talk about the flow of blood uh, mm-hmm. in, in the body, right? So uh, it's often said in medical textbooks uh, that William Harvey, uh, in, you know, uh, about uh, 800 years ago, maybe 600 years ago, he was the first one to uh, div- discover the fact that uh, there's pulmonary circulation, right? Mm. That blood flows through, how blood flows through the, uh, the, the the heart to the lungs and then back to the heart and then out to the body, right? But actually, bef- centuries before William Harvey, we actually had, in the Muslim world, uh, the scholar Ibn al-Nafis. And Ibn al-Nafis discovered uh, pulmonary circulation. He described pulmonary circulation. And he was also a Muslim theologian. He also wor- wrote works of Islamic theology. Wow. Um so these were, uh, were were a generation of scholars w- who had 
both the natural sciences and the scriptural sciences. They had the theology. And that also gives us an important reflection for today's generation is that today we often see these two separate mm. in our Muslim community. People are either imams or, you know, uh, du'at, uh, muftis, or they're scientists, doctors, psychologists, whatever. Mm. But what we actually need to do to reclaim that tradition is have a merging of the two, right? To have people who have that same shared experience in both because that really gives you unique insights when you understand both. And of course, you know, on that topic of science, one of these movements that is very much, you know, using science or I should say weaponizing science against religion and Islam is the movement of atheism, right? right. A lot of times you'll hear about the atheistic claims how science defeats religion or science, they use science as a mechanism to debunk God. Right. Um, can you talk a little bit about the atheist movement? I mean, I know there's this new age atheism, and I guess there must be an old atheism. I don't know what the old style is, but yeah, yeah, what yeah. would you say is the new trends of atheism that maybe we hadn't seen in the past? Okay, so this movement called new atheism, what is it? So new atheism was a movement that um, was uh, pretty much uh, led by people like Richard Dawkins, Sam Harris, who, by the way, were both scientists. So this ties in with what you're mentioning, this idea that science can disprove religion, right. science can disprove God. This is something that new atheism tried to promote. Um, now, new atheism kind of became popular in the early 2000s with the books that they were writing at that time. Uh, and then, you know, it, it, it re one of the things that you asked, what's the difference between new atheism and atheism before that? Right. The main difference was that new atheism was not just the claim that religion is false, but also the claim that religion is harmful. Mm. So that's the big difference. This is new so, age atheism. Yeah, new atheism. New atheism. Yeah. Okay. So new atheism said that not only is religion not true, but it's not okay to just like say, oh, well, these are religious people in society, let them be. You, we have to actively eradicate society of religion. And so uh, Richard Dawkins actually made a statement where he said, to raise your child with religion is worse than to do child abuse. And when you think about that, he's wow. basically saying, well, a person who does child abuse should be in jail. So he's basically suggesting that people who raise their child with religion are, are you know, should be incarcerated, right? Or are, are, are criminals. Mm. And that was something that, you know, it hadn't been seen before in the West. It had been seen in, in communism. Uh, in the Soviet uh, Union, there was... Uh, uh, the Bolshevik crusade for scientific atheism, as it's called, and where religion was actively destroyed, like the churches and mosques and people were uh, persecuted and tortured. But this was a, uh, this level of vicious rhetoric towards religion was new in the West. Now, what happened? This created a lot of hype. There were big atheist conferences. People identified themselves as new atheists. But if you look at the last global atheist convention that was supposed to be held in Australia, I think it was, uh, you know, 2016, something around there, um, it actually had to be canceled. And the reason for canceling it was because of lack of registration. <laughs> <laughs> so nobody wanted to register. <laughs> so you had this, you know, uh, exponential rise and drop of this mm. movement, like the shortest lived movement in human history, new atheism. And, and why did that happen? Well, New atheism was all, all this bold, uh, aggressive rhetoric towards religion. Religion is evil. Religion is that. But first of all, anyone who studied religion and, and, and would look at some of the claims that these people were making, they could easily point out these people don't have the faintest idea of even the basic concepts in Islam, for example. Mm -hmm. No understanding of Islamic theology. No understanding of what they're trying to criticize. And so if you're going to take an evidence-based approach to science, 
you should also take an evidence-based approach when you talk about religion. So why are you making claims without evidence? Why are you making claims without citations, right? Mm. And so a lot of people point out all of the mistakes that these people were making, like, you know, people like Sam Harris saying things like, most Muslims are deranged by their beliefs and they're all, you know, just like uh, on the border of becoming terrorists and this kind of stuff, this, this rhetoric. Um, it actually uh, was all unfounded, right? And people started yeah. to, when you actually analyze the Islamic text, you analyze Islamic theology, Islamic tradition comprehensively from people who are scholars, you find a totally different set of answers. Mm-hmm. So the Quran tells us, فَسَأَلُوا أَهْلَ الذِّكْرِ إِن كُنْتُمْ لَا تَعْلَمُونَ Ask the people who are experts if you don't know something. That goes for science and it also goes for religion, for, for Islam, mm. uh, for, for Islamic theology, Islamic law, all these, these different disciplines. So, that was one of the things that uh, was the first reason why the new atheist movement fell. It, it was just factually wrong on so many things. Mm. The second reason also was that it failed to provide people with meaning, with answers. So it's like you're going to live your whole life just screaming that religion is wrong, religion is stupid. But at the end of the day, when somebody asks you, what makes your life worth living? What is the purpose of life? Yeah. Well, how do you decide what is right and what is wrong? Where does morality come from? Yeah. And you have no answer to all of these things. Then what is this ideology giving you? Mm. It's not giving you any answers. So at the end of the day, everyone has to answer the big questions of life. Some of those questions are moral. How do I know that there is such a thing as good and bad? How do I know what is good and what is bad? Some of those questions are intellectual. Why do I exist? Why does the universe exist? Why is there something rather than nothing? Some of those questions are spiritual. You know, what is the purpose of my life? What makes my life worth living? And every single person has to come up with answers to these, right? Mm-hmm. Otherwise, they're just living in a state of heedlessness, of ghafla, as the Quran describes it. Now, the answers you come up with are either coherent answers or incoherent answers. And it's better to have coherent answers, right? And that's what Islam gives you. It gives you coherent answers to those questions. So this new atheist movement, it was running on all this anger. Mm-hmm. And a lot of that anger, we should also understand as Muslims, a lot of that anger was justified based on what uh, people had been uh, traumatized by their religious upbringing. If many right. people, uh, the way they were uh, raised in, uh, with religion and the institutions they were raised with in the West uh, was very traumatizing to them. And some mm. of that also happens in the East as well. Some mm-hmm. people, Muslims who are not following the Islamic teachings correctly, right? Mm. So we have to realize that there is factors that lead to that anger. But that anger was misplaced. And there was no solid understanding that was uh, carrying that movement. So mm. basically it just fizzled away very quickly. Do you see atheism rising now in the East, in in Muslim lands? I've heard, I mean, that's the talk of the town, right? Well, that's the interesting thing. A lot of the trends that first take place in the West, because the West is this exporter of culture mm. to the rest of the world. So all these ideas end up being translated into Arabic. And people in across the world, in the Muslim world, are watching the same movies, the same television shows, and listening to the same music that is being produced in the West, right? Mm. And all of these ideas, as we mentioned earlier, are embedded in that. So now some of these trends that may have died off in the West, they're still alive and kicking in the East. Mm. And so a lot of Muslim scholars are now encountering that, you know, a lot of objections are coming about atheism or, uh, you know, a lot of youth are asking questions about atheism that previously weren't. And so 
this is where Yafina Institute's work is really foundational because a lot of the resources we're developing, sometimes we think we're only talking to English-speaking Muslims in the West, mm. but these resources are going to be fundamental and crucial in the next 10 years and 20 years yep. as we encounter this huge wave of, of doubts and confusion sweeping across the East as well. Mm -hmm. um, one of the questions that people ask you know, in this movement, and I've heard young people who talk about this, the idea of proof, right? right? Objective proof. How do I prove there is a God? How do I prove right. that my life has meaning? Right. Uh, it's a very loaded question, but you know, if someone was to ask you that, how would you answer? Yeah, so that's a really interesting question because you know, the first thing that I tell people, often people get this question, they start focusing on how can I come up with some proof of God? They focus on that part. Mm -hmm. But I actually tell them focus on the first word, which is the proof word. And you turn it around and you say, Well, what would you accept as proof? Right? There was one debate I, I saw where um, an atheist was asked that, what would you accept as proof? And he said, well, the only way I'd believe in God is if I, sh I saw him directly. If he showed himself to me and he said, I am God, believe in me. Mm. Otherwise, I'd always find some reason to deny him. And it's interesting because the Quran mentions this objection, right? The Bani Israel, they say to Musa, we're not going to believe in you mm. until we see Allah directly. And then the next thing, the person asked that person, so if you saw God directly, would you then actually believe in him? You're saying, telling me you would abandon your atheism and you'd, you'd become a believer, you'd start going to the mosque or the church or whatever. And the person said, well, actually, to be honest, even if I saw God, I would probably think I'm just having a bad hangover. And again, the Quran mentions this idea as well. It says in Surah Al-Hijr, uh, the 15th chapter of the Quran, وَلَوْ فَتَحْنَا عَلَيْهِمْ بَابًا مِّنَ السَّمَاءِ فَظَلُّوا فِيهِ يَعْرُجُونَ لَقَالُوا إِنَّمَا سُكِّرَتْ أَبُصَانُنَا بَلْ نَحْنُ قَوْمٌ مَسْحُورُونَ Even if we were to open up the gates of the heavens and they were to ascend uh, up into the heavens or in another tafsir, they saw the angels ascend up into the heavens, they would still say, our uh, eyes are hallucinating. Mm. Somebody's cast a spell on us. So in other words, the problem is not the lack of proof, but the problem is a mentality that excludes any possibility of proof to begin with. Mm -hmm. And the other example I give people is, right now you and I are sitting here, you're convinced and you believe that we're sitting here. That we are not living in a matrix, for example. Oh no! Now don't open <laughs> up that door. Are we? I don't know. Okay. But but that's that's actually a big problem in philosophy yes. because you could be a brain plugged into a machine and there's wires feeding you the fact that you are sitting here. There's all these colors around you, and I'm sitting here and talking to you. And all of these are not things that you're actually witnessing, but they're things that are just being fed to you by stimuli coming to your brain through these this machine. Mm. Now, how would you disprove that? There's no philosophical proof that you would give to disprove that. But you don't wake up every day and doubt, like, how do I know? Do I exist? Does the world exist? Does it not? Mm -hmm. Because it's not meaningful to continue in that way. Mm -hmm. Right? So the fundamental thing that we look for when we talk about proof is what is it meaningful to believe? Right? What makes sense? Does it make sense to believe that everything in existence just popped into existence for no reason? That the universe is just a collection of particles that exist pointlessly? Or does it make sense to believe that all of this has a purpose, has a meaning, mm. right? So that's, that's the fundamental question a person has to come to terms with. Is there a point to it all? Mm -hmm. And is there a meaning to it all? And when you start to think about it through that perspective, you get out of this cycle of radical skepticism, of just doubting things. Because one of the things that some of the Muslim scholars mentioned is that 
when somebody comes with doubts and radical skepticism and distrust, no matter what you present them with, they can find a way to doubt it. Right. So the problem is not the proof, as I said. The problem is in the mindset. Mm. But if you if you, you look at the Quran, the Quran says, uh, for example, قُلْ فَأْتُوا بِكِتَابِ مِنْ عِنْدِ اللَّهِ هُوَ Come forth with a book of guidance from God that is a better source of guidance than the revealed scriptures. Mm. Right? Follow it if you're truthful. Actually try to live your life according to whatever other value system that you, you conceive of. You'll realize it's incoherent. right? Mm. And that the way to live one's life is to believe that my life has a purpose, that God created me for a reason, and that that reason is to... Uh, come closer to God and take care of His creation to to uh, embody moral virtue, uh, to worship God alone, right? Mm-hmm. To be custodians on this earth. Uh, the actions that we do in this life have significance, right? And therefore, to believe in the prophets and messengers God has sent to communicate His message to humanity. When you take that fundamental message of Islam, that is the message that answers all of these big questions of life. Mm. I mean, obviously, that's a beautiful response. I think one of the things that I sometimes get caught up in and I think about a lot is the idea of morality. Yeah. You know, because as Muslims, clearly our morality and, and what constitutes morality comes from the Quran. And so right. we understand what is right, what is wrong from what Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has revealed. Right. I'm still confused as to how a person who doesn't follow faith yeah. decides morality. Like yeah. something very subjective. It changes right. culturally over time. Is this something you've come across in the in the atheist movements around morality? How do they justify and understand morality? Yeah, so it is something that, you know, a lot of people have this kind of very naive idea that, oh, well, good people will be good and bad people will be bad. We don't need religion to tell us. But mm-hmm. actually, the, the truth of the matter is that every human being has good inclinations and bad inclinations. And you need to have a moral value system. And that has to be grounded in something to allow you to make the mujahidah to nafs, to struggle against yourself, to actually always pursue virtue. Mm-hmm. Uh, and if it's just you left to your whims, the human being will deteriorate morally. Now, one of the interesting things is that the, one of the most popular television uh, series in the past 10 years has been uh, the show Breaking Bad. I don't mm. know if you're familiar, yes. but uh, the fundamental story in, in Breaking Bad is about a uh, morally upright citizen uh, high school chemistry teacher, Walter great White. Walter White, great <laughs> yeah. guy, fantastic guy, yeah. very very mild, meek, mild uh, guy. Uh, wouldn't hurt a fly, right? Mm-hmm. And how does he go from that to becoming the kingpin of this uh, crystal meth, mm, yeah, meth business, empire, right? Yeah. Meth empire. And the actor uh, Brian Cranston, who played him, said in multiple interviews, he says something along the lines of, "What I learned from playing this character." This is not a story unique to him. It's it's how any person who is meek and 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 you know just like a good upstanding citizen could become bad. The whole title Breaking Bad is about becoming bad, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, through being placed in certain circumstances, right? And there's actually a certain scene where he's deciding whether to kill somebody or not, and he makes a little pa- chart on a piece of paper and yes. he writes on one side reasons not to kill Judeo Christian values, and he writes on the other side. If you don't kill him, he will kill you and your family. Right? And so he convinces himself that it's morally justified to, to kill this person. And he goes on like this story 
perfect is basically I call it like a modern day Barsisa story, right? Mm. Right, which obviously now you're you, talking you, my yeah, language. Now I'm talking your language because you've you've done that, right? Yes. You've made a, a film about that. Yes. But this is another example of that where you have somebody, the Barsisa story, for those who don't know, is a story of a pious monk who goes through several steps where he keeps making decisions that lead him in the footsteps of shaitan, right? In the, mm. On the satanic path where he goes from being, you know, this righteous person and ends up being doing a lot of evil deeds that you'd imagine unthinkable for such a person. Mm-hmm. In the same way, you have that with Walter White, right? He starts off as this, you know, morally upright person, gets this lung cancer diagnosis, decides he wants to make money for his family by going into the crystal meth business, and he ends up making a series of decisions which put him on khutuwat shaitan the footsteps mm. of shaitan. And that's the point, is that when it comes to morality, morality needs a grounding in something, right? Uh, there's some people who have said, uh, like one atheist philosopher, Richard Garner, he once wrote that as atheists, we should get rid of the concept of morality, of good and bad. Mm. Because just like we can't see God, we have no empirical evidence of God, these categories of good and bad are just human constructs, right? So this should we should have moral abolitionism. We just abolish it and let's just talk about things that we like and things that we don't like. Right. Now, if you do that, it's kind of like saying, well, I like my eggs scrambled or I like them boiled, right? Mm. It's just an arbitrary preference. It doesn't have any weight to it. So if people kind of overlook that preference, there's not, not really any consequences. Mm. One of the Muslim scholars who wrote about the Quranic system of morality is a scholar, uh, Muhammad Abdullah Draz from Egypt. He wrote an entire book about the Quranic system of morality, and he said any moral system has to have certain principles in it. It has to have a concept of ilzam, that the moral values are binding upon you. You have to follow this. Mm. It's not just whether you like your eggs scrambled or boiled, right? Mm -hmm. And not only that they're binding, but there has to be jazat, there has to be consequences, Mm. whether you, consequences to living your life in a good way or a bad way. If there's no afterlife, there's no consequences, Right. right? So there's certain principles that are needed in order to have a moral value system, right? And and that's what you find in the Islamic worldview, is you find a proper moral value system that not only do you have a way of grounding morality, but you also have the perfect role model, right? In the example of the Prophet Muhammad ﷺ, you have in the example of the Messenger of God the best role model, right? So when you look at the Prophet ﷺ, you see how to be the best father, how to be the best uh, you know uh, leader, how to be the best uh, teacher, how to be the best uh, neighbor, how to be mm. the best uh, uh, son, how, how to be the best husband, mm. all of these different things, it gives you a moral rubric. So now you can say, okay, this is where I need to work on here, 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 and here. And similarly with all the companions and the, and, and the other prophets as well, we have moral role models, mm. right? That we model our moral behavior after. Mm-hmm. Well, I look, I think this is one of the main problems that a lot of people have with this kind of new age woke culture Right. Of, you know, morality just being super subjective and you get to decide today, hey, you know, this is what we constitute as OK. And this is what a family unit looks like. This is what a marriage looks like. You know, these right. things are constantly changing and evolving, whereas Muslims feel and rightly so that these things are getting out of control. Right. That people now don't have any system to determine good or bad, right, right. or wrong. But yet we can be penalized right like you know you talk you hear horror stories in the uk where even i've heard of stories where um you know if the doctors or government believe that 
families are teaching their kids Islam maybe authentically in a certain way, then they will take them from them. Or if they right. teach them that, you know, don't believe this part of school or this part of science, if whatever yeah. families, you know, decide to teach their kids, there's a chance that their kids might be taken away from them. Right. Is this something that you see a, a growing movement of, of fear from Muslims from the left? You know, because previously it was like we feared the right. We feared the more conservative values. We feared, you know, right after 9-11, it was all around, right. you know, war and invasion. And we were very much apprehensive about being, you know, associated with the right wing. Right. But now it feels like a lot of that feeling of, of, of fear is coming from the left. I mean, how do you dissect that? Yeah. So there's one phrase that a lot of people mention, uh, which is that the left loves Muslims, but hates Islam. And the right loves certain conservative values which are found in Islam, mm -hmm. but hates Muslims. Mm. And so uh, that's been this kind of tension that many in the Muslim community are facing. So after 9-11, with all this increased rhetoric against Islam, all this Islamophobia, Muslims were desperate as a minority in the West to try to find allies and to try to find people who accepted Muslims and said, hey, these are, <laughs> these are human beings, right? Mm. Why you can't dehumanize them like that? You can't stigmatize them like that. Um, and so we've only just come out of that, right? It's, it's right. crazy to think like all the rhetoric about uh, ISIS, Daesh was was just you know a few years ago. But that I think was in many ways we should thank the pandemic. <laughs> the pandemic, yeah, <laughs> just it kind of blew up the news cycle and just something else yeah. happened, and then people Otherwise, had to change the channel. The news cycle was constantly about this, very stuff, much so, right? And it was always years. every time something happened in the world, it was always Islam that went on yeah. trial. And the first article I wrote for Yaqeen, uh, one of the first articles published in Yaqeen in 2016 was called Forever on Trial, which is the idea that Islam is forever on trial. Mm. Some Muslim does a bad action, and it's Islam that goes on trial. We don't right. talk about the person. We talk yeah. about, oh, does Islam preach violence, mm. right? All this stuff. So it's totally understandable that Muslims, you know, try to align themselves with a movement that would accept them. Uh, but there's other aspects of that, right? And Muslims are realizing it now, which is that the left is fundamentally motivated by this ideology of liberalism. What is liberalism? That the peak value in society should be freedom, liberty. Freedom to do whatever you want, right? Mm -hmm. And so people want to be Muslim, let them be Muslim. People want to do this. But there's no underlying values that grounds that, right? Mm -hmm. So what happens? You know, uh, now Muslims are, are running up against the, this tension, which is that, you know, when people are free to do whatever they want, uh, you know, Muslims are now being uh, almost coerced to accept that the whatever people want to do, right, mm -hmm. and accept those those values and replace their Islamic values with those values, right. So you know, like, oh, you're a Muslim, like, why why are you so against alcohol and why are you against uh, fornication or why are you against all these different things, right? Mm -hmm. You all of a sudden you have to erase this aspect of your identity as a Muslim. Mm -hmm. You have to erase your moral values. Mm -hmm. And what's interesting is when we talk about f freedom, which is the overarching goal of society and uh, liberal society, uh, from the Islamic standpoint, the overarching goal of society is actually justice. Because freedom doesn't give society any direction to travel in, mm -hmm. right? People are free to do whatever they want, but what should they want to do, right? Mm -hmm. What should they want? They, from an Islamic standpoint, the overarching goal is justice, which is fulfilling the rights of the creator and the rights of the creation. And when it comes to one's desires, uh, 
rather than saying, you know, just uh, unleash your desires, you know, just speak your truth and, uh, you know, uh, you be you, embrace yourself, Let, mm. just follow your own desires. Follow your heart. Follow your heart, right? Yeah. Do whatever you, whatever makes yeah. you happy, right? All mm. the, that rhetoric. What Islam actually says is, uh, As for the one who fears the standing before his Lord mm. on the Day of Judgment, and he prohibits he, he prevents his 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 soul his nafs from following its desire mm. paradise is that person's abode so the islamic ethics about desires is the complete opposite right so from the islamic standpoint you are taught that um you know the the lower desires is are something that you discipline that you attain mastery of yourself mm. mastery of the nafs this process of self-purification purification of the soul it comes about by you being the master rather than the slave to your own desires and that's the complete opposite from hedonism which is this idea that uh, do whatever gives you pleasure mm. and when you live in a society where uh, the peak value is is freedom ultimately you should just do whatever maximizes your pleasure do indulge in your desires gratify your desires whatever you want to do whatever your kink or fetish is you pursue that Right, that is what what is the difference. So you have two completely different worldviews, and that's where Muslims are now feeling this tension. So they're trying to align more with the right, but even the right is still under liberalism. But it's mm. it's classical liberalism as opposed to postmodernism, right? Mm. So there is still tension there. But some of the conservative values about you know the importance of a family, uh, the importance of of morality, uh, you know. These are certain things that Muslims uh, are finding are more in align with some of the uh, Islamic values. So now m the Muslim community is trying to pivot. But the reality of the matter is, Allah subhanahu wa says in the Quran, وَكَذَلِكَ جَعَلْنَاكُمْ أُمَّةً وَسَطًا Thus have we made you a balanced nation. Mm. وَسَطًا Middle path, right? Mm. So it's not about the right or about the left. As Muslims, our job is to stand up for what is true and what is right, no matter which side says it, mm. right? And that, if we stick to that, no matter where we are in the world, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala guarantees success. Allahu Akbar. That's well, the ultimate answer. What would you say is, uh, I mean, that's a very politically savvy answer. Yeah. For not a politician, you yeah. answer that perfectly. But if I was to ask, should Muslims align themselves right. with, you know, and we'll use the U.S. system it's because it's very easy. Right. Democrat, Republican, left, right, on paper, obviously. Right. Where would you see maybe the Muslim community venturing into in the future, do you think it is going to be something where we do adopt more of the mainstream conservative values and we do align ourselves more with the right? Or do you see it kind of, you know, going the opposite direction? So again, I, I take a step back and say, you know, we should be true to our own values, number one, regardless of who we work with. So one of the things that, uh, you know, Muslims will find is some politicians from the right align more with us, some politicians from the left align more with us, right? Mm. So rather than making certain alliances and then having to be thrown under the bus, mm. Muslims need to be more mature than that, mm. intellectually and politically. And we have to understand that we should be uh, open about who we are as Muslims, what our belief is, what our faith is, and that we open our arms and we're willing to work with whoever wants to cooperate on these goals. We, you know, shared concerns about 
children in society and how mm-hmm. we want the next generation to be raised and what we want them to be exposed to. Right? There are many people who, are, who would be willing to work with Muslims on these concerns. Many people who would be willing to partner with Muslims on concerns about uh, social justice, right? Ab- about the rights of the poor and the needy in society, mm-hmm. whether from the right or rather from the left. Many people who would be willing to partner with Muslims about concerns about the proliferation of the pornography industry and what you know, mm-hmm. kids as young as you know, age three, four, when they grab their, their smartphone, what they're mm-hmm. being exposed to, right? Um, there are people who are uh, on both sides are, who are willing to make these alliances. And so the Quran says, right? Cooperate with others on righteousness, bir, and taqwa, uh, God-fearingness, consciousness of God. So these are should be our primary motivations. Uh, and I would say that sometimes people go too much into the political strategies and they lose their values. Mm. Uh, many people, you know, reached a level where they're you know, they went so far in their political career, they said, well, at this point, if I mention my Islamic values, you know, I'm going to get in hot waters. And so mm-hmm. they, they throw their own Islamic values under the bus. Uh, and that's something that happens, right? So we need to, to, if we place Islam first, right? We place Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala first, our creator first, and our prior, ultimate priority is to do good for all of humanity for the sake of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, right? Mm-hmm. To, to be, uh, you know, what, this, what does this term mean, khilafa, right? God uh, says in the Quran that he, I'm going to place a khalifa on this earth. This means we have a moral duty on this, this earth to, uh, to spread virtue, to, to be kind and to up, uplift the rights of all human beings. Right? We have to be moral ambassadors. And if we put that duty towards Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala first and foremost, we won't get lost in the political strategies mm. and political games. Inshallah. Sheikh, that was very beautiful. I think your insight has been very helpful. How can people find out more about the work you're doing, about Yaqeen? Is there any social media websites you want to plug? Anything where people can find out more about you? Yeah, so uh, definitely they can uh, check out yaqeeninstitute.org. We have lots of articles, videos, infographics, all sorts of content. I've written on Yaqeen Institute about uh, atheism, about Islamic law, about uh, differences of opinion, about spiritual personality, a lot of different topics. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, you know, done some videos there as well. So that's definitely a, a, a resource people can go to. And we'll find your own social as well. You're on IG? No, no, I'm not on, You're on not social on media. I, and that goes back to this whole, you know, toxic world of social oh. media, right? I mean, I <laughs> at the end of the day, everyone kind of makes their decision of, what is the pros and cons? And for me, I, I'm not on social. Oh my God. You had you made the list, the same yeah. Walter White list. And yeah, you yeah, like, yeah. That's, that was on my list that I just... <laughs> no problem, Shah. Well, people can follow Yaqeen and follow the that's great right. work that you're doing. Uh, may Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala bless you and, and guide you and make this effort of yours one that is accepted. You know, I mean, providing this clarity in a time of confusion, I think is really important work. And this is the work that is going to set the foundations for you know keeping Islam in our community for years and generations to come. So may Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala bless you exactly. and the whole Yaqeen team. Thank and you. thank you all for watching. Thank you all for being a part of this episode. Inshallah, we'll see you next time. Make sure you stay up to date with everything happening at Muslimi. We'll see you all for the next episode of the Muslim Experience. Zakallah khair for watching. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh.